Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Walk This Way, a version of the song recorded by Run DMC, was a pretty big deal when it came out. It hit number four on the Billboard Hot 100. It was the biggest hit Run DMC ever had. It's the kind of song music critics on TV will say changed everything for hip-hop. Jay Smooth is a writer, a radio DJ, and an internet commentator. He's also a huge Run DMC fan. But Walk This Way... Maybe not so much. That was a song that frustrated me at the time because after years of me rooting for Run DMC to really earn that respect from the rest of the world and for people to recognize how much we love them, they finally got that acclaim from the wackest song they ever made in my eyes at the time. <laughs> so I had a lot of mixed feelings about it. Now I can sort of look back and appreciate more. It's Bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, a special treat for you. Three legendary interviews from our friends at the podcast Heat Rocks, Morgan Rhodes and Oliver Wang. On Heat Rocks, Morgan and Oliver talk to artists and thinkers about truly great albums. You'll hear Jay Smooth talk more about the Run DMC songs he actually truly loves. Oliver and Morgan will also talk with the singer and songwriter Michelle Indegocello. She'll tell us what it felt like when she heard Prince wanted to sign her onto his record label. Having your idol listen to your music or to have, you know, people compare you. There is no comparison. I'm like the, <laughs> the polish on his shoe. Like, there's no comparison. But to have that happen to you, it's life-changing. It's the thing you want from your parents, so to speak, or that you didn't have. Then finally, Vernon Reed, the founder of Living Color. He's a huge Jimi Hendrix fan. That probably won't surprise you. I mean, he's pretty much three slots behind Jimi Hendrix on all those 100 greatest guitarists of all time lists. He says that one of Jimi's most important records, though, is, a is actually a live album recorded in one night, less than a year before Hendrix died. That night, actually making this extraordinary moment in cultural history happen, I mean, they did something really unprecedented, and for the most part, you haven't heard anything quite like it since. And, and people, you know, they missed it. They missed what was happening. It's a Heat Rocks Spectacular this week, and it's all coming up on Bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're doing something a little different this week. You're about to hear three of our favorite interviews from Heat Rocks. That's one of our sister shows here at my company, Maximum Fun. I'm the executive producer of the show, help create it. Heat Rocks is a music podcast about passion. It's hosted by Oliver Wang, who's a veteran hip-hop writer and DJ and very successful academic in the field of pop culture, and by Morgan Rhodes. She's a music supervisor who works very closely with Ava DuVernay. Every week... Heat Rocks brings you a conversation with a guest about the album that shaped their lives, an album that they think is truly great, a heat rock, in other words. Morgan and Oliver have talked with people like Cut Chemist, Ishmael Butler, Ann Powers, and many more. 
You can expect deep, compelling conversations about R&B and soul and jazz and hip-hop, Latin music, more. Oliver and Morgan use each record as a jumping-off point to talk about its history, its context, and why we care about it. You'll hear what I mean in just a minute. Let's start with Jay Smooth. Jay is a DJ and a writer. He founded the longest-running hip-hop radio show in New York City, The Underground Railroad on WBAI. He's also been a vlogger for many years and a commentator who, in addition to WBAI, can be heard right here on NPR. He's also a good friend of mine and, I think, one of the smartest thinkers in hip-hop and American popular culture. What did he pick for his heat rock? Raising Hell by Run DMC. This is my recital. I think it's very vital to rock around. That's right. On top. It's tricky. It's tricky. Here we go. It's tricky to rock around, to rock around. That's right. On time It's tricky. It's tricky. 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 It's tricky to rock around. Jay Smooth, welcome to Heat Rocks. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited to talk. I mean, this album is... And Run DMC in general is such a big reason why I'm here doing any of this kind of work. And in a larger sense, any of us that uh, have a hip-hop voice, there's such a big reason uh, why we're here. So I'm glad to honor that in whatever way we can. I want to know from each of you, do you remember the first time you heard this album? Man, the first time, I mean, I remember vividly the first time I heard Run DMC when I heard Sucker MC's... I was sitting on the top bunk of my bunk bed in my room, and I used to put the bed sheet over my head to just be alone with my little transistor radio and check out whatever songs they were playing on 92KTU or BLS. And this track came on. It was so unlike all of the hip-hop that had come before. It was just this one militaristic drum beat and the vocals were just so hard and gritty i was sitting there like what is happening right now this is something serious and i I just felt like in that moment the whole world of what hip-hop could be was opening up for i was like this is i feel like i'm joining a movement right now Morgan, how about you? What was your first encounter with Run DMC? Well, it was 1580K Day and uh, mm. legendary DJ Greg Mack. Mack Attack. Uh, for sure. And it was, uh, it's like that. And that's the way it is. the world to make beat. I just was like, what is this? And I remember thinking, damn, I don't have any more tapes, right? Um, but I just remember thinking that, like, I want to remember these lines. And for years after that, whenever the issue of cash would come up, I'd say, money is the key to end all your woes. Jay, why did you want to talk about Run DMC and Raising Health uh, with us today? It may not be possible for people to understand who weren't around for hip-hop's evolution in the 80s. It might not be possible to understand 
how unrespected and unrecognized hip hop was mm. by the entire mainstream of America before Run DMC. And Run DMC articulated from as soon as they came out this mission of we're going to take this style that we created here in New York, in the hood, this generation of black and brown people, and we're going to make the entire world take notice and pay attention and respect it, and we're going to do it on our terms. We're going to take these two microphones and these turntables and come up on this stage, and you're going to respect that just as much as you respect any singer that comes up here with a band. And I don't think it's possible for people under a certain age to understand what a preposterous claim that was (laughs) that you would ever be able to do that. Jay, and I know we're here talking about Raising Hell, but do you think Raising Hell is their best album? I would have to say so. I mean, I love each of the first three albums, but that's the one where the sound really comes together. And in, in interviews, they, they'll talk about how on the first two albums, they were kind of running through the book of rhymes they already had and throwing it together. But with Raising Hell, they wanted to really sit down and compose things together and just make make a cohesive album project. This was sort of a coming of age for me around the time that I was getting into MTV. And one thing that made Run DMC and this album larger than life is that I I saw so much of it on MTV. I saw the videos, I saw them on. So they, to me, were a band. Like it was two brothers rapping, but but Run DMC to me was like a huge band. And so I think it's hard for this generation to sort of appreciate the classicness of this album and this band because... MTV now is like reality shows and 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 gook and uh, no shade you know <laughs> but it, but it isn't what it was and 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 we don't rely on it for our musical content in the way that we did then and, and in a way that allowed um, acts like Run DMC to be larger than life. I think partly what you're talking about is the impact of the single Walk This Way, which is exactly. a cover essentially of an Aerosmith song, but in a way that you don't, you don't remember that Aerosmith actually recorded the song to begin <laughs> right. with. And Jay, I'm wondering when you first heard and especially saw the video for Walk This Way, you know, what did you think that the, the kind of statement they were trying to make? I heard the song before I saw the video. I got the cassette tape of the album. I'm rocking to every track. And then I get up to this track, Walk This Way, and I am just flummoxed. I have no understanding of what the hell is supposed to be going on right now. I have never heard the song Walk This Way. I've never heard of Aerosmith. Right. And I have no idea what's supposed to be good. Like, what is all this weird, gravelly singing? What part of hip-hop is this? I hated that record when it came out. <laughs> then once I saw the video and I learned, okay, Aerosmith is this band and people use that track as a break beat, so now they're mixing the two styles together. Once I had, and and the video does a great job of telling the story and giving you that context. Once I saw that, I understood it a little better. I still didn't love it, but I, you know, I grew to appreciate it in a different way. And I got to say, listening back to the album now, I think that is the track that's aged best. And I I can sort of enjoy it more than I enjoy most of the other tracks. Oddly enough, When it came out, I didn't get it at all. I mean, we got to dig into that real quick. Why do you think that song has has, outla- has aged the best, as you just said? It may just be music that's based on synthesized drums and sounds 
it relies on whether those particular drum sounds come to sound dated compared to electric guitar and so on. Mm-hmm. That's a more timeless sound that can have more staying value. And probably engineers and the people mastering in the studio have more experience mastering this rock band, so they probably did a better job of recording it in a way. And also, I just may be more open-minded about rock music than I was when I was 13 years old. That could also be a part of it. That was a song that frustrated me at the time because after years of me rooting for Run DMC to really earn that respect from the rest of the world and for people to recognize how much we love them, they finally got that acclaim from the wackest song they ever made in my <laughs> eyes at the time. <laughs> so I had a lot of mixed feelings about it. Now I can sort of look back and appreciate more. Mm. I, I might not have liked the song outside of the video. The video really did it for me. What I didn't know, I think I was just too young to know, was I was so focused on the hip-hop part. I, it wasn't until I got older that I was like, wait, what, are they, what is um, what is Aerosmith really talking about? So his <laughs> lyrics were a little bit on the... <laughs> I had to listen to it again to be like, What? I think one of the things that that will always put them in this unique place in hip-hop history is the way that they flow together. That sort of call and response back and forth. It always felt like they were just completing completing each other. I just didn't hear that after that. And even when you had people rapping together or groups rapping together, it was just this particular brand of magic that I don't think I, I have heard since. This speech is my recital. I think it's very vital to rock around. That's right. On top. It's tricky. It's tricky. Here we go. Morgan, you were mentioning K-Day earlier. What kind of songs off that album were in heavy rotation out here? Well, the two that I heard all the time were Walk This Way and Peter Piper. And Peter Piper is my jam. Now Peter Piper, pick peppers, but run rock, rock, humpty, dumpty, fell down. That's his heart, time, Jackie, nimble, what? nimble, and he was quick, but jam, mass mud, faster, jack, so But that's one of my favorite songs, and that's what I heard. My question for you, I'm from L.A., and so, you know, raised here, so that's what I heard on the radio from this album. What did you hear? What Was every single from the album being played out there? Most of the big singles were played a lot out here. Peter Piper was definitely my favorite as well, and... I think that one, that's the other one that's also aged really well, which yeah. might speak to my theory about synthesized drums being more likely to get stale because <laughs> Peter Piper is Jam Master J actually cutting that Bob James record back and forth at yeah. the core. Of it. I think that, that helps the sound. Peter Piper was definitely all around. It's Tricky was all around. I mean, Hit It Run, Perfection. Really? Pretty, pretty all, most of the tracks on the album you would hear around New York pretty often. It's kind of hard to imagine an album of this magnitude having an underrated song on it. But if there was one, what do you think is the one that doesn't get enough love? Going back and listening to it now, one that stuck out for me was Is It Live, which has a real go-go element mixed into it, which I don't think I recognized as such at the time. That was one I was nodding my head to pretty heavily when I went back and revisited. All those songs you mentioned are fire, but also what's fire for me is my Adidas. It's not my favorite. Peter Piper's my uh, a favorite, but my Adidas is a jam. I was surprised you didn't pick that one. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, my Adidas 
is not my favorite musically as far as what I would go back to compared to Peter Piper. But I think my Adidas is the perfect encapsulation of the arc of Run DMC's career. That song was taken by a lot of people as just some sort of materialism and a window into getting your first sponsorship deals from Adidas, which it did also open the way for. But to me, that's that song is such a beautiful, poetic exploration of the idea of these humble tools that we developed here in New York City, out on the corner, have taken us around the world and we've gotten to represent our culture and our generation on stages around the world. We went on Live Aid and the poor got paid mm. and we did it in these same Adidas sneakers that all of y'all are wearing out on the block where we came from. And we're always out there representing y'all and we come back to y'all. That song tells the whole story of what Run DMC had uh, journeyed through and achieved in a way that I love and just uh, I, like I don't. It doesn't speak to me musically as deeply as some of the others, but in terms of the story that it tells, I think it's the perfect Run DMC song. And Jay, I think you were mentioning there's a certain ambivalence one could have around Raising Hell that on the one hand, because it was such an important and popular album, it shifted the paradigm, but at the same time, it also created the opening in which the commercialization of hip-hop in ways in which it kind of gets away from the roots of where it started in the 70s, this album also made those things possible. And my Adidas seems to be a bit of an encapsulation of that kind of ambivalence that one could have, right? Yeah, I mean, every big step in hip-hop's evolution and penetration of American culture has been a gift and a curse in some ways. I mean, for a lot of people who were around in the 70s, Hip-hop, as they knew it, died when the first hip-hop vinyl came out. Right. Because the idea of a hip-hop record was anathema to them. Hip-hop was supposed to happen in the form of this community event at the party. And I think there's truth to that, and that's an understandable sentiment, but also that compromise of letting it be turned into a mass-produced commercial product is what allows... It takes a nation of millions to travel around the world and spark generations of activists. So much of what we love about what hip hop became comes out of each step of compromise between the purity of art and community and the sort of propulsive power of commerce and that capitalist instinct. As a West Coaster listened to this album, one of the things, and Run DMC in general, I got, you know, I got put on a lot of East Coast sl uh, slang that we didn't use. And one of my first introductions was UV Ellen. And I was like, yo, this is, <laughs> to, to borrow this term, it, this is ill. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that, that's just a, a little West Coast factoid. That was one of my, my jams on here. And I didn't expect to like it, but I did. Just because of the culture that it introduced me to, um, East Coast hip-hop culture. That's a trip to hear Morgan talk about how uh, she was introduced to East Coast culture that early. I sort of feel jealous because it wasn't for a few more years that we here in New York would have that same experience of getting to know West Coast culture the same way. I wish I wish there hadn't been that imbalance. I, I remember when I was first hearing NWA or maybe Easy es solo album I heard first, 
I, they kept talking about Compton, and I was like, well, "What is is Compton in New Jersey?" I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a while to sort of piece together what I was getting exposed to, and then this whole new understanding opened up. First of all, of the idea that hip hop could be this thing that finds its own voice around the country and then around the world, and it showed me there's this whole other culture on the West Coast I didn't know. As important as Raising Hell was, within two years, they dropped Tougher Than Leather, and you just felt felt like the moment had passed. And they went from basically being the most important rap group on the planet to feeling like has-beens in like 24 months, which I think partly says something about the speed and the pace at which hip-hop was evolving. And Jay, I mean, you, you made a great point about how Rakim, just his rhyme schemes took some of the basic ideas of, of what Run DMC was doing and then leveled it up, like many, many levels up. But how is it that Run DMC managed to not so much, it, it's not that they ethered themselves per se, even though I think there were a lot of label problems and kind of industry shenanigans that, that, that held them back in the process. But that group went from, again, top of the world to feeling outdated in a really fast amount of time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just this confluence of factors that all came together to add up to what for them was the worst case scenario. Like they had a gap of maybe a year, a year and a half longer than they meant to between yeah. Raising Hell and the next album. And then that gap happened to be the most creatively explosive stretch of time that hip hop had had up until then with this whole new generation led by Rakim G-Rap, Kane, KRS, and so on, just sort of rewriting the whole blueprint. I've said the word blueprint a lot, but uh, this was the era when blueprints were still being laid down. And by the time Run DMC came back with Tougher Than Leather, I remember reading at the time that they knew they were in trouble and needed to figure out how to recalibrate for this new world. And they re-recorded tracks. Like, I think they re-recorded tracks like Run's House and uh, Mm. Beach to the Rhyme. But it was just too late for them to catch up. This totally makes me think of um, something that Peter Goralnik, who has written a lot about R&B and soul music of the 60s, he wrote about um, when Aretha Franklin's uh, I Never Loved a Man Mm -hmm. uh, came out. And this was, I guess, 1967 or so. And I'm going to try to get the quote right. I might be a little bit off. But it was basically that hearing the title track off that, that album for the first time, it was as if the millennium had arrived. You know, just albeit 40 years early. I've always wanted to have, be able to climb into that time machine and go back and experience what it is that Goralnik meant by that. What does it mean to hear something and feel like, okay, the future is here now? I think we all, we, we all desire to have those things because we read about it and it sounds amazing and it's, just, it's impossible to know unless you actually live through it. Yeah, and it's, you know, that I was having this sort of double consciousness when I went back to listen to the album this week of feeling all this rush of emotion and nostalgia and pride for everything this music meant to me. But I was also trying to listen with the ear of someone who's hearing this for the first time now, having grown up on Jay-Z or Outkast, much less Future or Migos. 
and trying to grapple with this and understand what people connected with. And I, I felt like with that ear, this probably sounds a lot clunkier than it does to my 44-year-old nostalgic ear. And I think that's, I don't know, I mean, that's just the way of things with art. That's, some things are going to end up in that box. If you had to describe Raising Hell in three words, I know that's tough for you writers and intellectual types, but I got to pose it because we do it all the time. If you had to describe Raising Hell in three words, what would those three words be? I would say uh, hard. I want to say brilliant, but I mean brilliant in terms of it being strategic mm. um, as well as it just being a brilliant work of art. Like it's, It was brilliantly conceived in terms of their calculations of how to hit different notes and connect with different people uh, with the places they took each song. And then I would say uh, beautiful. I mean, it's just, mm. it's beautiful for me to go back and revisit and feel the pride that I felt for these young artists going out and showing the world uh, what my generation of black and brown people and my generation of New Yorkers was contributing to the world and sort of making people feel and understand a bit of the pride that we have been feeling about this hip-hop culture for a while already. Jay Smooth. If you want to hear more from him, his radio show Underground Railroad plays Friday nights at 10 on New York's WBAI. You can stream it there as well. You can also check out his video commentary series, which for my money is absolutely as good as it gets. It's called The Ill Doctrine. You can find more about Jay and his work at, and this is going to show you what an internet music commentary OG Jay is, hiphopmusic.com. Yeah, he registered that himself. It's not like he bought it from some dude that registered it a long time ago. He registered that when nobody else had hiphopmusic.com. Okay, anyway, you'll hear more from Heat Rocks when Bullseye comes back after a short break. Up next, one of my personal favorites, a lady that I just love, Michelle Ndege Ocello. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. In 1980, with a few thousand dollars and used dairy equipment, Ken Grossman founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken's award-winning ales propelled him from home brewer to craft brewer. Today, Ken and his family still own 100% of the company, one of the most successful independent craft breweries in America. More at SierraNevada.com. This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We do long-form interviews with the people behind the best books, pop culture, journalism, and more, so you can get to know the people whose work you love. You'll find Fresh Air on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Maximum Fun's new sci-fi comedy podcast, Bubble, is coming to San Diego Comic-Con on July 21st. At 1 p.m., Bubble cast members Travis McElroy, Cristela Alonzo, Eliza Skinner, Allison Becker, Mike Mitchell, Jordan Morris, and Danielle Radford will be signing autographs. Tickets are required, but free. Then at 5 p.m., the cast will participate in a panel moderated by Jesse Thorne, held at the San Diego Central Library. For more information, visit MaximumFun.org slash SDCC. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, we're giving you a taste of our sister show, Heat Rocks. It's a podcast we make here at Max Fun. 
Every week, writer Oliver Wang and music supervisor Morgan Rhodes talk to a guest about the album that made them who they are, an album that they think is a true classic. And next up is Michelle Ndegeocello. Michelle is a songwriter, a singer, occasionally a rapper, and an incredibly virtuosic bass player, one of the greatest in the world. She broke through in the 1990s as a signee to Madonna's Maverick Records label. She was a huge player in the soul and dance scene, and still is. She's also a very accomplished jazz player. And if you aren't familiar with her by name, you almost certainly heard her duet back in the 90s with John Mellencamp, a cover of Van Morrison's Wild Night. And everything is so complete. Michelle's a prolific recording artist. She just dropped her 12th album this past April. It's called Ventriloquism. It's a collection of covers. It's out now on the indie label Naive. When Morgan and Oliver asked her for her heat rock, she picked a stone-cold classic, Purple Rain by Prince. Michelle, welcome to Heat Rocks. Oh, thanks. That's amazing. <laughs> so, what was your introduction to Prince? Let's start there. Yeah, I had a feeling when I chose this this recording that I would have to have a lot of backstory. <laughs> <laughs> um, Prince is the reason I wanted to be a musician. Mm. I remember remember hearing the For You recording. Um, one of my mother's good friend's daughter, who was at least 10 to 12 years older than me, played it for me, and it was like nothing I'd ever heard in my life. I'm a teenager when Purple Rain comes out. I'm... It was something I went to by myself, and the visual element definitely embedded itself, but it's, it, it was the going home at night and playing that record mm. over and over again, all the different styles that were uh, incorporated in the soundtrack, and and also the story. I guess I had a similar sort of upbringing that had a lot of upheaval. Mm. So it just spoke to me. It made me not feel so alone. And I'm sure that's what made it so important to me or a life changer. But in hindsight, I see it's quite misogynistic. But at that <laughs> moment, <laughs> at that moment in time, you know, this beautiful androgynous young man who played the guitar riding around on his purple motorcycle. Yeah. It was my, my James Dean moment. <laughs> Along those lines, were you introduced to the film first or the soundtrack first? Well, where I lived, I could walk the, down this large hill. It would take It's like a 30, 40-minute walk, and there was this huge movie theater where mm-hmm. it was playing. And it, within that same tiny mall was a Kemp Mill Records. So I literally went to see the movie, and then after the movie, walked to the record store wow. and walked all the way home. <laughs> <laughs> Um, went to my basement um, and played the record. But I guess the movie, I remember sitting very close. It was large. 
And it was. It was both dreamy film idol experience, rock hero. Yeah. I just, I mean, my heart beating fast, just thinking about it now, and there's nothing like that. Mm. But also seeing him walk through the streets like a normal person also was intriguing because he was so outer-worldly. Yeah. You know, I have a lot of religious rhetoric, but it was like watching the Messiah, like the person you dream about <laughs> wow. and who's going to change the world for you. I know, I know yeah, it yeah. sounds fanatical, but that's right. the well, kind of prince, prince. He, right. person he I was. That, yeah. I was that person. Yeah, yeah. My experience with with Purple Rain was uh, myself and a bunch of other students went to go see it, and we actually saw it in Berkeley. I was in uh, I was in a summer bridge program actually, and so we all pulled our money together to go see it. And I just remember being so mesmerized when we came out. We decided we were going to put together a dance routine to When Doves Cry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of my friends was like, "I'm going to pop lock." I went back and watched a. I watched the film in, in prep for the chat. Mm-hmm. And so I guess as a youth seeing it, I missed so many things that sort of gave me pause last night. I was like, did Morris Day just throw yes, somebody in the did. dumpster? Yes, he did. And <laughs> I, I don't mean to interrupt, but yeah, No, it, I just was like, wait, wow. And then the whole, like, I mean, I think just being younger, I, I, when I first saw it, I was like, damn, Apollonia's fine. And I think that's where it started and stopped for me. Watching the film again, I was like, is he is he really teasing her with his motorcycle? Is he making her? So there were some things that were problematic, as was a little bit of the acting. But that, for me, sealed Prince's um, larger than life. He became a rock star to me on that album. But as you see, though, it's funny. I, I mean, only like I, in my mind now, I do see them as two separate pieces of work yeah because then when if I, if I just talk about the record i'm just like let's go with doves cry it doesn't have a baseline that's groundbreaking yeah in uh for black music at that time it's like if i if i listen to it just as music i it's funny but yeah watching it made me I had I cringe is cringe worthy. <laughs> there are a few things in there are cringe worthy. Yeah. Not just because now this topic about misogyny is apparent, but also there's the scene where he's with his with his father, mm. and his father's going through all the music, and he has all these creations. Yet he's a broken person. Really struck me. Like my father's a musician, and I think he had a lot of dreams and plans that didn't come to fruition yeah yeah and i through me you know i think he saw what he couldn't mm. what something he missed out in life yeah and so that really hit me at, when i watched it what did you like about purple rain what spoke to you when oh, you heard it? um the, the deconstruction of uh, when doves cry the no bass was fascinating to me i thought that was just it was mind-blowing i would die for you was I think I drove my family crazy. <laughs> I would just play that one over and over again. The the hi-hat pattern, mm. the, the way he hits accents within it. The chords were very, like, uh, Sunday school Christian harmony to me. Mm. Just, it, it, it uplifted me. Because you are such a Prince fan, were there songs that you know had fallen out of his live performance uh, catalog that, that, you, that despite understanding and being sympathetic, that you were genuinely disappointed that he wasn't going to perform anymore? Oh, he never disappointed me. Okay. Not, a, not okay. one moment. There's no live show I've ever seen of his where I ever felt 
a tinge of mm. disappointment. I I rarely have disappointed. I love even seeing musicians falter mm-hmm. mm. because at least I, I because I just know like it's not easy. Yeah, yeah, and we live in a world now where it's not a it's, it's not a criticism. It's not good or bad because I'm really trying to be weary of that as well. But I know there are shows that are touring now. A lot of the things are on tracks because people want to have a show. And mm-hmm. I'm learning that having a show is very different than being a musician. Yeah. And I think even Prince struggled with that because he's the consummate musician. Mm-hmm. And all he did all that live without all that. And uh, I was on Warner's. Uh, the same label as him, and I would ask a lot of those guys stories about him. You know, Prince seemed to really struggle with hip hop and the sampling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just because he worked so hard. Right, right. And so that's what I'm saying. That's why I'm never disappointed. He's uh, been a mentor to me in the sense of like, yeah, never. You know, can't be disappointed. Everyone here is just trying to express themselves, and it may be different, and you may not like it, but. There's, you know, you can't question anyone's sincerity. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I try not to do. And mm-hmm. um, I must admit, there was the Staples Center show where he decided to play like Raspberry Beret mm-hmm. and a lot of the older stuff, just him and the guitar. And my and I was brought to tears. Yeah. And there was all the other stuff, which was the great show. Right, right. You know, but the, the when he just sat down to play the instrument, which I think, I think is going to happen to a lot of people. And then in my in my dreams and my dystopic fantasies, eventually there'll be no electricity, and we're really going to look to those people who can just pick up a guitar and some bongos and move your heart. And so, <laughs> you know, I saw him at uh, the forum at the time. Uh, the church that I was going to owned the forum, and we were under contract to honor the shows that had been there. Prince's tour was the last show that we did. Mm. The pastor told after Prince passed that. Prince was like, I want to see, I want to meet the people that are on the forum. This is a church I want to meet. I want to meet them. The pastor's nervous. He's telling us, you know, he's like, I'm in there nervous. I'm trying to be about my business and sound very whatever. He says, I, I'm, I'm thinking Prince is going to keep me waiting because all these, you know, rumors about his attitude and stuff. And he goes, I just hear heels clicking down the hall. He's like, I'm at this beautiful house. And he says, it, we had a two-hour conversation about God. Our conversation about God was so long, I didn't think we were going to get the contract because I was like, does he, does he just want to talk about it? I remember being at that show, and Prince's managers and stuff were mad at him because he he decided to sell all the tickets for $20, and they were pissed, but he wanted everybody to be able to come. He had played so many songs that I just was so delirious with hits, and at the moment I was thinking, what else can he play he did an encore, and he said, don't play with me, L.A., I have too many hits. And then he did, like, 15 more hits. And so to echo your point, I was never disappointed either. Every concert that I went to of Prince's, the ticket said, please wear purple. And I wore purple down. I was clean as the Board of Health at those concerts, right? <laughs> Dress purple down. But it was a community of old and young men and women, straight and gay, all looking at this genius in front of us. It was years before we knew we were going to lose him. And it was a moment that I thought, I don't think there is one album that I can claim I, I got to know Prince. I got to know Prince over the, his entire career. Although some people would argue that Purple Rain is the most personal album because we see more of himself. I, I think you saw, I think Prince slipped himself in in many different places. 
one of the songs that doesn't get mentioned a lot on this album, and I don't know why, because it's a jam, okay? It is a heat rock. Well, it's Computer Blue. You're right. Where is my love life? I mean, the um, way... Well, you're right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. And then I guess at the two-minute mark, he just does a change-up on me. Well, I just wasn't expecting it to go in that direction. That's it right there. That yeah, is a jam. And in the movie, everyone starts dancing on the one. Everyone's going side to side. That's just a. And it's instrumental. I do. I like. I, I like that. It had a lot of. It had a lot of instrumental things going on. Do you have a fire track off this LP? No, I gotta say, I would die for you. I mean, yeah. I'm mm. sorry it's lame, but that is my one. What is it about it? Just the way it makes me feel. Mm. And I. You know, I mean, I've been listening to this conversation. I mean, I just—I mean, I guess I shouldn't be afraid. I'm a—you know—I'm a believer. I am—I am—I believe there's something I cannot see mm. that is greater than myself. Um, and it's there's yeah, there's something in there. And eventually, he tells us that's what it was, what he was writing about. But I'm—I've—I feel that from the beginning, from the first time I ever heard it. From the beginning to the end of that song, it's just like he's trying to, to me, mm. I feel like he's just trying to remind me, like, there, there's something bigger than you and that life is about sacrifice. Not necessarily like these mythical, like the blood of the lamb or the yeah, sure. G- even the Jesus thing, but like you must sacrifice something. And to, to know a love like that is just beyond your... Your conception, but I'm trying to help you feel that so- audibly, yeah. sonically. I yeah. want you to know that, know that about life. Yeah. I think the you know the the kind of conventional holy triumvirate of of American um, artists, and it's, it is very male. So I'm, I'm very yeah. self aware of that right now. Is is Michael, Stevie, and Prince? Yeah. I'm just waiting for you. Not that there's an equivalent to Prince, but who else would you put in a camp in terms of people who have shifted music in whatever monumental level that you consider like who else would is there anyone that would even come yeah. close to in that conversation oh, yeah. d'angelo d'angelo definitely shifted oh my god we've been chasing r&b for like 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 uh his first recording mm. f- for a very long time jay dilla oh, shifted yes. music completely shifted music um i i i mean to me, Stevie Wonder's in a class by himself, and that's just the conversation yeah. we don't need to have. I'm, actually, I'm like, don't ever talk about him. I need people not to talk about him. Right. Because <laughs> you just, you can't. Right. You're yeah. not prepared yeah. for that conversation. There's several artists I feel have, like, I mean, in terms of a killer singer who I feel like she's going to, she has achieved that. As a singer, I think people would disagree material-wise. Is Alice Smith is one of the most mm. singing cats out here? Mm-hmm. I'd say something, <laughs> and I'm and I have these two categories. I was like, you know, she can sing without a microphone. There are very there are very few people that can sing without a microphone. Mm. Like I could put her, you could put her in a room, and she could sing out with no microphone <laughs> and change the energy of the room.
and that's a gift. So I'd put her in there like, uh, like definitely a game changer. But it's it's all different. Like then there's the writers. Then there's like that woman who sings for Little Dragon. To me, she oh, carries that line. Yeah, of the prince, the the purity of the mm. instrument. I think she has that as well. Mm. I mean, Flying Lotus. That has yeah. changed so many things uh, in the music game uh, in terms of like y- you mean like just a phenomenon and uh, so I would add them. Okay. Um, mm. But you know that's how I believe I I think I'm like will there ever be a Michael Jackson and Prince? We got a different thing. You mm-hmm. know, we're no longer searching for that type of Messiah, that mm. type of iconic singer. I mean, we have Beyonce, and then some people have Taylor Swift. We have that, but mm-hmm. it's different. It's not. It's not like. It's, it's not like that anymore. You mm. know, to me. Yeah, I don't feel that. If I can come back to the song "Purple Rain," that first time that you sat down, you you had your record in the basement listening to it. What did you think of the song? Or what do you well, feel about it now? I had Either the movie. Too. I just was like, yeah, he wanted to do his thing, and he was sad, and he lose people, and people you don't have love, you can't trust people. We ask our guests. This is a tough one too. Mm-hmm. I, I I wouldn't want to answer this myself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Should I ask it? But we yeah. we we ask our guests to describe the album that they chose in three words. And if you had to describe Purple Rain in three words, what would they be? This man's best. Mm. Mm. I'm getting a little sad because I'm just that hit me. It made me think of that we don't have him anymore. Yep. My favorite album is is always going to be Around the World in, in a Day. But when I listened to Purple Rain this morning and on the way over here, I thought, maybe i got to rethink that because this one, this one hit me in a different way than Around the World in a Day. Around the World in a Day is complicated. Yeah, Gen- um, but it's genius. It is genius. But this one to me is go straight to the heart of yeah. Prince or the kid, whichever. I think that there were parts of the kid and Prince that were completely... And it's such a, um, the end of it is such a triumph for Wendy and Lisa, who throughout the movie are saying, please listen to this record. Please yeah. play this record. Yeah. And it ends so well. Yeah. I mean, and uh, and the best, you know, is subjective. But I, I mean, it's no way for me the thing that moves me the most. He has so, so many other songs. But I feel like he would even want you to know, like, I this is you just can't be beat. Right. I killed it. Yeah. Fuck, I killed, killed it. it. Yeah. Say something. And the times I've met him, that was important. Look what I've done. Unlike I think either of us, you've actually had the the opportunity to interact with Prince. What was it like actually meeting him, and what was it from those encounters that you took away? I think I I think the moment I met him, I I like lost my ability to br- to breathe. But then also got to see that he was just a human being. Yeah. And that was hard. I'm a complicated human being. And I'm also a very complicated female human being. Mm -hmm. And I think I was a female human being he hadn't really encountered often. And also, I I am like that, believe it or not, even though I I mean I wear flip-flops and I'm a beachy. 
I am trying to be the best at everything I do. I yeah. have a very large spirit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and if you don't know me well, that spirit can be aggressive, come across aggressive. Mm. And so, like I said, we were two people. Yeah. That had very big personalities. <laughs> so, but, um, yeah, he, he, I, it's funny. I mean, put it this way. I wouldn't be here. He's another person. When I, when I came to L.A., I had a chance to be on his label or Warner Brothers. Hmm. Having your idol listen to your music or to have, you know, people compare you. There is no comparison. I'm like... The, the polish on his shoe like there's no comparison but to have that happen to you it's life changing it's the thing you want from your parents so to speak or that you didn't have and and it's it just like I said life changing hmm. and also we're in a weird time in history where we're not the dinosaurs like we can see the meteor coming mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you see you have people like Prince and you have all these other great human beings who have achieved so much yet something in them there are lessons in these people and I hope that the people that come after them will heed those lessons because I'm starting to thank you for sharing that I very much appreciate that Michelle and Dege Ocello, talking with Oliver Wang and Morgan Rhodes of the Max Fun podcast, Heat Rocks. Let's take a listen to a song off of Michelle's latest record, Ventriloquism. This one is a cover of the TLC classic, Waterfalls. Even more bullseye still to come. When we come back from a quick break, guitar legend Vernon Reed of Living Color talks about guitar legend Jimi Hendrix. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Lisa. The mattress with over 11,000 five-star reviews and a mission to end bedlessness in America. The Lisa mattress was designed to provide support and pressure relief to every body type and sleep style for a deeper night's sleep. Lisa plants a tree for every order and donates a mattress for every 10 sold. Get $125 off, free shipping, and 100 nights to try the Lisa mattress. Go to leesa.com slash NPR. This is Peter Sagal. When we began Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we dreamed that our rude jokes would be, in the end, the appropriate way to talk about the news. And look, it happened. Listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Hi, this is Jay Keith Van Stratton, host of Go Fact Yourself here on the Maximum Fun Network. On Go Fact Yourself, we take the smartest people we know and make them look dumb. Paul, by the way, how much do you know about chicken husbandry? You gotta give them that grain. <laughs> All right. You gotta give them that grain. And then smart again. What future Hall of Fame pitcher for the Cleveland Indians became the first active player to enlist? Bob Feller. When- oh, okay. <laughs> We've got me... Co-host Helen Hong, plus celebrity guests and actual surprise experts. In the coming weeks, you can hear guests like Maria Bamford, Tom Bergeron, Paul F. Tompkins, Janet Varney, and Grant Imahara. And if you're in the New York area, come check us out live. We're doing two shows there on July 21st and July 22nd. Go to GoFactorPod.com for tickets and more. We'll see you in New York or on the first and third Friday of every month here on the Maximum Fun Network. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're changing things up on the show this week. We're playing some of my favorite interviews from our sister show, Heat Rocks. Heat Rocks is a show about the music that inspires us. Every week, Morgan Rhodes, who is a music supervisor who works extensively with Ava DuVernay, and music writer and DJ and academic Oliver Wang, talk with somebody about their Heat Rock, the album that was so good, so powerful, so amazing that it changed their life forever. We're going to wrap up this episode with Vernon Reed. He's one of the founders of Living Color, the iconic genre-defying rock band that recorded the hit Cult of Personality in 1988. As you would imagine... From a guitar virtuoso like Vernon, he's a fan of classic rock. And it probably wouldn't surprise you to know that when he was asked to pick his heat rock, he picked an album by Jimi Hendrix, Band of Gypsies, a live album released just a few months before Hendrix died. But to hear Vernon tell it, this is more than a dope album. It's also documentation of a night that changed everything in music. Vernon, thank you for joining us here on Heat Rocks. Hi, it's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Let's start with this. How did Jimi Hendrix enter your life? Okay, so I think I saw Jimi Hendrix on the Dick Cavett show. My next guest is one of the superstars of the pop music world, so uh, here is a, a naive and innocent Jimi Hendrix right here. And he was wearing like a blue kimono thing. And and at, at, at that time, any time a black person was on TV, it was an event. He was so different than every other black person I saw on TV. And this was uh, after uh, the Woodstock thing because he, he had done the Star Spangled Banner and it was really, mm. co- really controversial. It was one of those... It was it was one of the alternative. I think it's almost like the beginning of the alternative versions that were done. You know, because after that, Jose Feliciano did a, a different version of it. Marvin Gaye did a version of it, and each. 
interpretation, people were kind of outraged, you know. All those interpretations are really beautiful, obviously beautiful yeah. now, but at the time that they happened, people were up in arms. And 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 Jimmy on the Decavit show, you know, Jimmy was sort of he seemed very surprised that there was even a controversy. When you mention the national anthem and uh, talk about playing it in any unorthodox way, you immediately get a guaranteed percentage of hate mail from people well, who say, how that's dare That's not unorthodox. Anyone. That's not unorthodox. It isn't unorthodox? No, no. I thought it was beautiful. Where he was coming from and what people projected onto him were two very different things. I mean, he was a veteran. This man was in the 101st Airborne, so when you write your nasty letters in... You know, he was a paratrooper. I mean, that's how he met Billy Cox. So he was like, oh, I just, I just love the melody. I thought it was beautiful. He, he did it from the standpoint of being patriotic. Given that Band of Gypsies, as, we're, as we've been talking about, was your introduction to Hendrix, and given where he was in that particular moment in his career, how do you think it left or shaped your impression of who Hendrix was, what he was capable of, what his creativity was like, etc.? Machine Gun, my God, you know, Machine Gun. Because the war was still going on, and it was kind of like, is the Vietnam War ever going to end? You know, I mean, you know, you get scared like that when you're a kid. You know, I remember really thinking, like, was this war going to go on long enough for me to get drafted? It was, it, was really, it was a really scary thing to be a kid at that time. In Machine Gun... There's a, a point where he's playing with the Sprinks. He's playing a Stratocaster guitar. And part of the mechanism of the guitar to hold, you know, is there's a, there are these Sprinks. You know, there's a tremolo arm. There's a, a, a called a twang bar. The tremolo arm, which is attached to the bridge, which allows him to do those kind of pitch dive bombs. Those kind of swooping sounds. <laughs> Partly that's Jimmy manipulating the uh, tremolo arm or the twang bar. And there's a mechanism in the back of the guitar that allows that to happen in the springs. There are either two or three springs in the back of the guitar. So the guitar at that volume is 100% live. Anything you do with the guitar is going to come through the amplifier. And at one point, he starts playing with the springs in the back of the guitar. And it sounds like a clock. It sounds like it sounds like this is the final hour. It sounds it sounds apocalyptic. And the whole mm. the whole thing of machine gun, the way he uses various forms of vibrato, the way he's able to get vibrato to to to, to fade into feedback. The way he's, he does something 100% interactive, and any and all sounds coming out of the instrument are used to musical effect, whether it's feedback, which that's the howling when the, when, the pick, when the sound of the guitar is feeding back on itself because the strings are vibrating and then it's being picked up and feeding back on itself. <laughs> 
you know, or whether he's he's uh, he's doing harmonic picking where he's just choking the pick and he's getting these little ping, these pinging kind of notes. Everything he's doing is telling the story of a soldier's walking point in a rice paddy. The people in that room, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, down on 2nd Avenue, right over there, you know, they became a bank later on, the the, the, um, the Fillmore East, in, right, in right. the East Village. People in that room, their lives were changed. I, don't, I can't imagine anyone seeing that live in real time. It's interesting because I think it obviously makes sense, especially this album coming out in you know fall, uh, spring of 1970, that his intro, Jimmy's intro remarks to the song about this being dedicated to the soldiers in Nam, that is one of the big, obvious backdrops to Machine Gun. But I think for me, partly because I'm listening to this song through the prism of current day, mm-hmm. is it's what he says before that, which is this is to the soldiers in Chicago Absolutely. and in other American cities. Dedicate this one to Soldier uh, Draghi, seeing this going on. All the soldiers that are fighting in Chicago and Milwaukee and New York. Oh, yes, and all the soldiers fighting in Vietnam. But they do a thing called machine gun. I mean, he, he forged a unity between, you know, the conflict. You know, the people were like, they, everyone had been lied to. But because uh, because of the power dynamic, Johnson wasn't going to pull, you, you know, they got deeper and deeper into the lie. This is before they stage managed war. Like, people went and they saw what they saw and they reported on what they saw. Right. And and they saw little bits of what was happening to the Vietnamese. They, You know, that girl that was running down the, down the street, you know. Right, after getting napalm. After sure. getting yeah. napalm. This was the thing... That from that point on, that was going to be the last war of where it was not going to be stage managed or where all information was going to be tightly controlled, where you were hardly ever going to see, you know, never see an enemy body, supposed quote unquote anybody and and not see actually the body bags. People saw this stuff. And that's what Hendrix was presiding over. And the thing is, again, he and Billy there but for the grace. You know, they were both, they did their service and they did their time and they weren't deployed. And that's the only reason why they, they weren't there. But I knew plenty of musicians like Billy Bang, Frank Lowe, there were a lot, this whole generation of jazz cats that went and saw the worst. But Butch Morris. Right. There's a whole generation of dudes that that was a framing device for them, for what music meant for them. I want to come back to the live element that you're talking about and just, as you were saying, imagining what it would have been like to be in the Fillmore East during one of the two shows uh, in which this this album was taped. And obviously, you and the band are no strangers to, to, to taping live albums. From a musician's point of view, do you go into taping a live album similarly or differently than if you were doing a studio project? Well... You know, there's live, there's live, there's live, and there's jive. I mean, you know, I mean, (laughs) again, talking about stage managing, you know, the thing about the Band of Gypsies that's really remarkable, because live albums, you know, people, you you go for your best take. In fact, that was their second set. They did a first set, and legend, you know, and the whole legend of it is that um, 
It wasn't uh, very good. Yeah, well, it was. Um, it wasn't what the second set was. You know what I mean? And they proceeded to make turn around and make history. And if you listen back, Machine Gun is great in the first set, but it's not the Machine Gun that we know. It's it's a very different thing. The way the songs unfold, Billy Cox deserves special mention. Billy Cox is the bassist on this. Bill, the, the the whole thing wouldn't work. The dynamics between between Jimi Hendrix, you know, and, and Buddy Miles. Buddy Miles' a snare drum. Buddy Miles' a snare drum is mm-hmm. a is a character. It's a unity. And, but Billy Cox is is not just holding it together, but he's he's holding it down. But he's adding these little flourishes, and it's so meaty. The sound of his bass is so crucial to the whole to the whole thing working. It's, it's a remarkable thing. But the other thing, too, it's just happening in real time. Even bits like the end of Power of Soul, there's like a thing where, oh, we're ending it here? No, we're ending here? No. Oh, oh we're ending it here. It's, it's happening <laughs> in real time. You can hear it. The way this record swings, and it's not jazz, like the song Who Knows just lopes and swings and does this swaying, you know, just incredibly groovy rhythm throughout it. And that's a function of Buddy Miles' just incredible pocket, but it's also the way um, uh, Billy Cox just swings is in there, you know? Actually, even Jimmy's guitar, he plays, he's actually plays, it's almost like peeling the layers of an onion. You know, he actually plays three guitar solos in Who Knows. But the first one is a relatively clean, bluesy solo. Then there's a super intense wah-wah. It's really magical what happened between these three people but it's almost like they're four like I'm listening to it and it's like oh there's this you know the way Billy's playing the way Billy is holding it down but also being melodic the way Buddy's snare is like is commenting the way Buddy functions as almost like a Greek chorus of one voice playing off of what Jimmy's saying the call and response between them
It's interesting, too, because in rereading the original reviews of both the performances as well as the album that came out in 1970, this was not a particularly well-received LP at the time. Uh, I think the New York Times review called the album uh, mediocre. And in particular, a lot of reviewers lasered in on Buddy Miles, not for his drum work necessarily, but for his singing, and just didn't like how much vocal time that he got on this album. It, it seems like Miles was really the, the scapegoat in some ways in some of the more um, uh, middling reviews that the album received. Well, you know, um, this is the thing about things that are really innovative and very different. that people don't get it. People miss amazing things all the time. Very erudite people, very smart people miss stuff all the time. I mean, when have you heard two vocalists of equal stature, of equal strength, playing off of each other in such a context? Mm. I can't think mm. where this where there's also incendiary instrumentalism happening. That night, actually making this extraordinary moment in cultural history happen, I mean, they did something really unprecedented. And for the most part, you haven't heard anything quite like it since. And and people, you know, they, mm. they missed it. They missed what was happening. Before we wrap things up here, this is one of those, I know, impossible questions to answer because it's a counterfactual. But... You know, Hendrix obviously died far, far before his time. Um, if he had lived, let's say, at least another 20, 30 years, what directions do you imagine he might have gone in uh, towards in the 1970s or even, you know, into the 1980s? I would say this is this is a kind of um, Philip K. Dickian thought. I mean, you know, on, when I speculate about a Jimmy and Live, one— Jimi Hendrix absolutely would have made a record with Miles Davis. He would have mm. he would have made a record with Miles Davis, and maybe mm. a record with Miles Davis along with Rahsaan Roland Kirk. I think that uh, you know he would have moved to Jamaica and hung out with Bob Marley and grown dreadlocks. Um, I think that he would have done a duet record with Robert Fripp and explored tape loops. I think. Mm that he would have gotten together with Jack Bruce and done something with Carla Blay. I think that uh, he would have become a Scientologist. I think he would have become a Buddhist. I think he would have uh, had a chance encounter with Philip Glass. I think that uh, Jimi Hendrix would have uh, moved to Germany and had a bunch of kids. I think he would have... Uh, I think he would have went back to the, the he would have went to the crossroads of Highway 61 and just to see what would have happened if he went. That's what I think. I don't know if you've ever tried to write a screenplay, but I think your first one is right there. It's the <laughs> it's the Imagine Jimmy life. I, I would I would 100 percent go watch that movie in terms of all of those those <laughs> scenarios that well, you imagine. That was that was fantastic. Well, well, thank you very much. You know, you know, if you get a chance to, you know, drop that on Janie Hendrix. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Last question, bringing this back to Band of Gypsies. Mm. If you had to describe the album in three words, what would those three words be? Crucial, incendiary, 
phenomenal. Mm. There it is. Vernon Reed. His band, Living Color, is still going strong. They dropped an album last year. They've got a few festival dates lined up over the summer. Head on over to the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org for more information on that. That's all for this week's Bullseye. I hope you enjoyed it. I am so, so proud of our work on Heat Rocks. It is an incredibly insightful podcast with two brilliant hosts and many, many, many brilliant guests talking about some of the greatest albums of all time. I really loved, for example, Brother Ali talking about Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. I honestly can't tell you how proud I am of this show. I think it is so insightful and moving and funny and engaging, and I really hope that you will go and subscribe to it. You can find it in wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, It's a really great show. Anyway, Bullseye, recorded at MaximumFun.org, World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where this week, one of those Mylar party balloons floated all the way up to our ninth floor office window. It said, welcome home. And so we have decided to go ahead and write that sequel to American Beauty we've been thinking about. Here's something I learned from American Beauty. You know, there's a lot of darkness going on behind those white picket fences. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows from MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Thanks to Christian Duenas and Kara Hart, the producer and past producer of Heat Rocks. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music was provided to us by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, we have over 15 years' worth of interviews available. Just go to MaximumFun.org to listen. While you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We'll tip you off to interviews, share everything we're up to. You can also look up Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on YouTube to find all our interviews and segments there as well. And they're easy to share there if you've got a friend who's not podcast savvy. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.